A warm welcome to the Hertie School. Hertie School. The Hertie School. The Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School in Berlin. Good evening, everyone. And uh, my name is Boshak Chalil. Uh, I'm the co-director of the Center for Fundamental Rights at the Hertie School. And it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to the book launch uh, presentation and discussion of uh, Dilek uh, Kurban's book that was published in 2020 entitled Limits of Supranational Justice, the European Court of Human Rights and Turkey's Kurdish Conflict. Um, This uh, book discussion uh, is going to uh, be uh, a very, very timely discussion, uh, not only because of the, the focus of the book, but also a much larger discussions about the role of the European Court of Human Rights in Turkey and also beyond um, Turkey. So I'd like to introduce you um, our uh, author today, Dilek Kurban, and our wonderful discussant, uh, Alexander Gneus, uh, before I give the floor uh, to, uh, to Dilek. Um, so Dilek Kurban uh, is a, a fellow and also lecturer at uh, the Heritage School. She's been teaching international law and law and governance at the Heritage School uh, for, uh, for some time. Uh, she has a doctorate uh, from the Maastricht University, which she obtained in 2018. And this book also comes out of her doctoral dissertation research that she carried out. And the dissertation also received the award entitled the Erasmus Dissertation Prize in the Netherlands uh, in, in, 2000, uh, in 2018. Um, Dilek's uh, work uh, spans both uh, uh, legal studies, socio-legal studies, uh, and political science. Uh, her work has uh, very much focused on European human rights law, but also on questions around um, state violence uh, with, a, with a focus on, on Turkey. Uh, but her work is really at the intersection of legal mobilization and legal studies. And as we will hear later on uh, in this book, she uniquely combines uh, both a bottom-up and a top-down approach to the study of law, legal institutions, and individuals and groups who mobilize around um, human rights law. Uh, Dilek also holds a JD from Columbia University And she holds a master's in international affairs, also from Columbia University. And uh, before uh, she transitioned, uh, let's say, to academia, she was also a policy uh, fellow between 2005 and 2013. And uh, she uh, has authored numerous uh, very significant publications uh, within the context of the Turkish Economic and Social Studies uh, Foundation uh, in Turkey. So it's wonderful to have you, Dilek, here. It's delightful uh, that you're going to be uh, discussing the book with us uh, this evening. Uh, after Dilek, we have, uh, we're going to have a discussion about the book, and we have a, um, a very uh, special guest uh, from, uh, from the United States. We will have Professor Alexander Hnus, who's going to act as discussant uh, for, this, uh, for, this, uh, for this event today. And uh, Alexander is Professor of Law and Legal Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And her focus, uh, her research focus is human rights law, uh, but with an emphasis on uh, Latin America. And her work also spans political science, sociology, and law. And uh, it could be a, a little question in the minds of our listeners as to 
uh, why a book that focuses on the European Court of Human Rights and Turkey's Kurdish conflict is going to be discussed by a scholar whose work spans human rights law, but with an emphasis uh, on Latin America. Uh, one of the very important, perhaps, uh, beginners or insights about uh, the European Court of Human Rights and Turkey's Kurdish conflict is what pe some people have uh, kind of uh, remarked as for the first time uh, in the history of the European Court of Human Rights, the court dealing with Latin American or inter-American court, uh, court type of problems in the context of widespread uh, state repression. So I think it's exceptionally timely that we're having a, a discussant uh, who is coming from the region uh, where the European Court of Human Rights has learned some, but perhaps not enough in the way that it dealt uh, with Turkey's Kurdish conflict. So with those brief uh, introductions, uh, let me just say uh, that how uh, honored we are to, to have Dilek and Alex uh, here with us. Without any further ado, I'll give the floor to Dilek and just welcome her once again uh, to the launch. Thank you very much, Bashar, for this introduction. Um, and thank you to, um, I thank the um, Herti Center for Fundamental Rights for organizing this. Um, and of course, to Alexandra for being here. So um, I'll start right away. Um, I'll start with a few photos. In these photos, we see an occupying military force, masked special operation teams, completely destroyed towns, and civilians carrying their few remaining belongings and fleeing into safety. But these photos were not taken in Grozny under Russian siege, neither were they taken in Aleppo during the civil war in Syria. They show the towns of Jizre and Shurnak in Turkey's Kurdish region. In July 2015, the Turkish military launched an offensive in the Kurdish region. It went into densely populated towns with thousands of combat-ready troops and armored vehicles against urban militants of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK. The military bombed and laid siege to entire towns without any regard to the presence of civilians. From August onwards, the government declared round-the-clock open-ended curfews in more than 30 towns and neighborhoods, which lasted several days, weeks, months, or years. Over 1 million people were locked up without access to food supplies, water, electricity, power, and emergency health services during long winter months. No one, including the sick, elderly, children, disabled, pregnant women, was allowed to leave without authorization. According to the UN, by the end of 2016, some 1,200 civilians had been killed by indiscriminate use of tanks and heavy artillery inside residential areas. Many of them died for lack of access to emergency health services. According to the Turkish government, over 350,000 residents were displaced. According to human rights NGOs, numerous were disappeared and tortured. Not a single military or security officer has been held accountable. One of the civilians who was killed during the curfews was Taibet Inan, a 57-year-old mother of 11. On 19 December 2015, at around 7 p.m., she was shot to death outside her home by Turkish security forces. She was on her way back from visiting a neighbor across the street. Her crime, quote-unquote, was to step out during a round-the-clock curfew in her Kurdish town of Slopi. While she lay wounded in front of her doorstep, her family called for an ambulance, which never arrived. Her brother-in-law, Yusuf II, was shot when he stepped out to help her. The family called the emergency police line again, this time to seek authorization to leave home to bring an ambulance themselves. 
The authorities said that they would be safe to leave if they carried white flags. The family obliged, but were nonetheless shot at by the security forces. After several failed attempts, the family watched Taibet and her brother-in-law Yusuf bleed to death. They were able to retrieve Yusuf from the courtyard into the house, but Taibet's body remained out on the street. For one week, her dead body lay in front of her house while her family repeatedly begged the authorities for permission to retrieve and bury her. Once again, the family was told they could leave as long as they carried white flags. Once again, they obliged. Once again, they were shot at. This time, Tibet's husband, husband Halit got injured, but fortunately he survived. One of Tibet's sons later wrote, quote, my mother remained on the street for a whole seven days. None of us could sleep, worrying dogs would come around, birds would perch on her. As she lay 150 meters away from us, we too died, end quote. On 25 December, Tibet's body was finally taken from the street by the authorities to the morgue of the local hospital. When the authorities buried Tibet 18 days later, they allowed only two of her children to be present at the funeral. Her husband and remaining nine children were denied a farewell. She was buried without a religious ceremony. Individuals trapped in the curfew zones did precisely what would be appropriate in a country that claims to be a democracy under the rule of law. They went to courts. They requested Turkey's constitutional court to issue an interim measure by ordering the government to end the curfews and to either seize the military operations altogether or at least carry them out in accordance with international standards. One after another, they failed. According to the constitutional court, there was no serious danger requiring an interim measure. The court did not even review whether the curfew decisions lacked a legal basis, as argued by the petitioners, let alone engage in a proportionality analysis. The ECHR's response was not much different. Out of the 34 applications made by over 160 applicants, its granted interim measures is only in only five. In four of these cases, the government defied the interim measures, resulting in the death of the applicants. In the remaining 29 cases, the ECHR relied on the decision of the Turkish Constitutional Court, which it found, quote, to be relevant and potentially capable of providing interim relief for the applicants. Tibet's family was among the petitioners. Before applying to Strasbourg, they sought help from the Constitutional Court. Her petition reached the Constitutional Court, her family's petition reached the Constitutional Court on 6 January 2016 after her body was taken off the street. The family requested a very specific interim measure, the return of the body so that Tibet could be buried properly with a religious ceremony. Despite the urgency, the Constitutional Court did not respond. Meanwhile, the day after Tibet's family petitioned the court, the government amended the relevant regulation stipulating that bodies not claimed by the families within three days would be handed over to local authorities. On 8 January, the family petitioned the ECHR. That night, the authorities went to Tibet's family home and asked her illiterate son to sign a document, which was later found out to state that the family had until 9 a.m. the same day to claim the body, or otherwise the authorities would bury Tibet in a place of their own choosing. By the time the rest of the family was informed, they were too late. Tibet was buried by the authorities. The lawyers informed the ECHR and insisted on their request for an interim measure, this time to enable the family to at least hold a religious ceremony by Tibet's family grave. The ECHR rejected. On February 2nd, nearly one month after the filing of the petition, the Constitutional Court finally issued its decision, rejecting the request for interim measures on the grounds that Tibet had already been buried. 
Five years after the filing of the individual petitions in the curfew cases, the Constitutional Court is yet to issue a judgment as to whether the Constitution and the Convention have been violated. As for DCHR, in January 2019, it rejected all pending cases on grounds that the applicants did not exhaust domestic remedies, first and foremost, the constitutional complaint mechanism. So how has all of this been possible, right? After all, Turkey is an EU accession country since 2005, and the status suggests that Turkey has fulfilled the Copenhagen political criteria, including the protection of minority rights and human rights. Turkey ratified the European Convention on Human Rights as early as 1954, and not only that, but is actually among the co-drafters of the convention. It has recognized the individual right to petition the ECHR in 1987, and has been subject to the ECHR's compulsory jurisdiction since 1990. So clearly there's a puzzle here, right? Because after all, the convention system has been declared as the world's most effective human rights regime. There's a widely shared claim that the ECHR is the world's most effective supranational human rights court. Furthermore, the ECHR is not new to the Kurdish conflict. It has built a sizable case law on this issue since the 1990s, finding multiple violations of the convention in hundreds of judgments. And yet, there's been no fundamental change in Turkey's policies towards the Kurdish conflict. State violence against Kurdish civilians continues unabated. Security forces who committed these crimes remain unpunished. Nonviolent Kurdish dissent continues to be criminalized. Kurdish human rights lawyers continue to be arrested, intimidated, and jailed. Elected Kurdish officials continue to face judicial repression for contesting official policies and demanding equal treatment for the Kurds. Currently, dozens of Kurdish parliamentarians and mayors are in prison many of whom are being held in prolonged pretrial detention since November 2016. In addition, Kurdish mayors have been stripped of their elected seats and replaced by government-appointed bureaucrats. Now, certainly Turkey's extremely poor human rights record derives from complex domestic factors, which I discuss at length in the first part of my book. That said, the ECHR's share in this outcome must also be addressed, particularly in light of a vast academic literature attributing to it a positively transformative role. This brings me to my research question. So what are the possibilities and limitations of effective review by a supranational human rights court of authoritarian regimes engaged in state violence against minorities? I seek answers to this question by taking the ECHR's engagement in Turkey's Kurdish conflict as a case study, hoping that my conclusions are generalizable for the ECHR's engagement in other authoritarian settings, but also for the inter-American system. Few words on the concepts that I use. My focus is the effectiveness of the ECHR and not on uh, compliance with its rulings. While compliance is an effect, aspect of effectiveness, theoretical scholarship is too limited in its scope in defining the effectiveness of supranational education as the ability to compel state compliance. Placing government's executions of judgments at the center of inquiry shifts the attention away from supranational courts, takes their rulings at face value, and thus misses the chance to meaningfully affect their effectiveness assess their effectiveness. I understand effectiveness to have two essential components. Supranational courts' willingness to make full use of their tools and resources in their oversight, and their openness to legal mobilization of minorities which are failed by their own judicial systems. Both of these are independent of the court's ability to actually change government behavior, but concern their willingness to keep up the pressure on authoritarian regimes by documenting state violence, exposing the complicity of domestic judiciaries, and calling for real policy change, <coughs> as well as by hearing the justiciable claims of minorities through remaining open and responsive to their 
In some, with respect to authoritarian regimes, I understand effective supranational education as one which effectively substitutes domestic judiciaries who are complicit in state violence against minorities. Now, when you look at scholarship um, on the ECHR, there's a dichotomy there between the old and new member states. Accordingly, the old ones are established democracies with um, strong rule of law traditions, which need only fine tuning of their legal systems. Whereas the newcomers are post-communist nations with fragile democracies and weak rule of laws in need of structural guidance. There's a similar dichotomy in um, scholars, con uh, studies on constitutionalism in the ECHR system, whereby um, the scholars argue that the basic formula of an entrenched written constitution, charter of rights, constitutional judicial review was replicated in every constitution adopted in Western Europe since 1949, since the end of the Second World War. And constitutional scholars depict the early 1990s as the second phase of constitutionalism, this time eastbound. Accordingly, the accession of these post-communist countries has required the ECHR to assume the role of a constitutional court. Now, when you look at, look at the scholarship and look at how Turkey is treated, it's actually uh, quite remarkable that at best you have a recognition of Turkey as the exception, and oftentimes literally in a footnote or a parenthesis. Evidently, there is a significant gap in ECHR scholarship. The old new member states dichotomy does not capture the case of Turkey as it, it has been there from the beginning. Yet the basic formula never applied to Turkey. When you look at the constitutions adopted in Turkey after the Second World War, they did not produce an authoritarian rights-based constitutionalism, but to the contrary, authoritarian constitutionalism. Neither has Turkey been going through a linear democratization process. Nearly 70 years after its transition to a three times interrupted polyarchy, Turkey remains a country where some of the freedoms regarded to be sine qua non of democracy are selectively and subjectively adhered to. Unlike the transition to democracy from military dictatorships and totalitarianism in southern and central eastern European countries, the transition in Turkey was from an authoritarian single party regime to polyarchy, where the system has remained anti-democratic. In other words, there has never been an identifiable rupture with the ancient regime or a decisive break with the anti-democratic past. The regime change in southern and central and eastern Europe was coupled with constitutional moments where the new political elites drafted new constitutions, which were handed over to new courts tasked with transitional mandates. In these states, democratic transition, constitution making and transitional justice were often interwoven processes. Certainly, recent developments in the poster children of post-communist transition, such as you know, Hungary and Poland, cast shadow on what seems to be premature assessment on the durability of these transitions. But coming back to Turkey, the constitutional regime adopted by the junta after the 1980 coup d'etat has survived the transition to electoral politics and has since been preserved and expanded by every single civilian government. Today, laws governing virtually every walk of public life in Turkey, ranging from political parties to media, elections to civil society, higher education to higher judicial institutions, have been drafted by the junta and remain in force despite some improvements made under EU pressure. Finally, Turkey has been governed by some state of exception during half of its republican history. Now, a few words about theory and method. So in seeking answers, I primarily engage with two um, approaches. First, I resorted to sociolegal scholarship to see how Kurdish lawyers mobilized the ECHR. My book builds on the empirical data I gathered on Turkey's Kurdish conflict and human rights over the past year, 15 years, towards 
fieldwork, participatory observation, uh, interviews, conversations, and also collaborations um, as part of my policy work, policy-oriented research with bar associations and lawyers in the region. In line with the bottom-up appro bottom approach of legal mobilization literature, my focus was on Kurdish human rights lawyers. But I also interviewed Turkish government officials, Council of Europe and EU officials, the ECHR judges in respect of Turkey, and lawyers at the court's um, Turkey desk. Second, I looked at the ECHR's responsiveness to Kurdish rights claims. For that end, I employed the doctrinal method of legal research. My primary focus was the court's jurisprudence. I analyzed not only its judgments, but also inadmissibility decisions and strikeout rulings, and also friendly settlements. I did not confine myself to majority opinions, but also closely studied dissenting opinions. Finally, to also assess the court's effectiveness in terms of compliance, I studied the Committee of Ministers' resolutions and interim resolutions and Turkey's legal texts and rulings of Turkish courts. So, which conclusions can be drawn regarding the ECHR's oversight of state violence in the Kurdish region? First, the ECHR has never made full of its tools and resources, never made full use of them. Not even though during the peak of its engagement in the Kurdish conflict, which corresponds to mid-90s to early 2000s. Although it issued hundreds of similar judgments in nearly identical cases of tortured and forced disappearances, extrajudicial executions, and forced displacement, the ECHR has never said that the emperor is naked, namely that the Turkish state was engaged in an organized and discriminatory violence against a part of its population, and that this violence was carried out and covered up by the entire state apparatus, including the judiciary. And this is not due to the inherent limitations of supranational review. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights has shown that it is legally possible to find state practice of violence on the basis of one case alone. The ECHR simply did not want to do that. Secondly, the ECHR's reluctance to acknowledge the absence of the rule of law in Turkey became all the more pronounced with the Council of Europe's enlargement. Preoccupied with its docket crisis, the ECHR endorsed in Turkey's impunity regime by approving a reform law which gave Kurdish victims of gross violations compensation, but not justice. Doing so, the ECHR went against its own jurisprudence, where it had time and again said that there can be no effective remedy for gross violations without holding perpetrators accountable for their crimes. Final factor explaining the ECHR's ineffectiveness in Turkey's Kurdish conflict is its rigid application of the subsidiarity principle. Over the course of its engagement for three decades, the ECHR has firsthand witnessed the Turkish judiciary's complicity in covering up gross human rights violations against Kurdish civilians. And yet, in applying its procedural rules and substantive doctrine to these cases, the court has always acted on the assumption that Turkey is governed by the rule of law. Now, why does Turkey still matter? Scholars have been generous in their assessment of the effectiveness of the ECHR system. Their positive conclusions have been possible because they completely overlooked the Turkish case or at best treated it as an anomaly. In reality, the effectiveness of a supranational human rights court can best be assessed on its engagement in hard cases. And in the case of the ECHR system, Turkey is that hard case. Now, why is that? Long accepted and treated as a liberal democracy, Turkey is in essence an authoritarian regime. Seemingly, it has been an electoral democracy since 1950. In reality, electoral competition has never been a level playing field. Certain segments of the population, first and foremost the Kurds, have always been denied equal political participation, both during and between the elections. 
political party closures, the 10% electoral threshold, which is the highest in the Council of Europe, and the imprisonment of elected politicians are only some of the legal strategies the Turkish state has employed towards that end. Turkey has never adhered to the substantive sine qua nons of liberal democracy. Its political culture has never tolerated democratic dissent, particularly on sensitive issues concerning nationhood. The judiciary has never acted independently from the executive. More importantly, it has never strived to do so. Despite their formal independence, Turkish courts have fully cooperated <clears throat> with authoritarianism and not just under military regimes, but also civilian rule. The ECHR system itself has impeded the court's effectiveness in Turkey. There are two principal reasons for this. The first is the ECHR's deference to Turkey's terrorism defense. The court readily accepted Turkey's argument that gross abuses were unintended consequences of counterterrorism. Granting Turkey a very wide margin of appreciation, the ECHR has never questioned the necessity of prolonged emergency rule in the Kurdish region, which lasted 15 years, nor did it review the proportionality of emergency measures as one would expect from a supranational court. The second factor explaining how the convention system has impeded its own effectiveness has to do with realpolitik. Both during and after the Cold War, Turkey's geostrategic significance for Europe has insulated its domestic policies from external pressure. This, I argue, is the main reason why the Council of Europe member states have never resorted to available enforcement and sanction mechanisms against Turkey. They tolerated successive military interventions by never suspending Turkey's membership and resorted to the interstate complaint mechanism only once, only to reach a very problematic settlement with the government. The Turkish case has significant implications for scholarship. Existing theories on the court's effectiveness need to be revised on the basis of empirical case studies of the court's engagement and impact in authoritarian settings. Recent developments in new member states such as Azerbaijan, Poland, Russia, render such rethinking all the more necessary. The European Court too, I argue, needs to develop a differentiated approach. In applying its evidentiary rules such as those concerning burden of proof, interpretive tools such as margin of appreciation, and doctrines such as positive obligations, the court should be mindful of the fact that subsidiarity cannot be a fit-for-all principle in its relations with domestic judicial systems. It is only after scholars and judicial practitioners adopt such a differentiated approach that we can meaningfully assess DCR's effectiveness in authoritarian regimes which engage in violence against their minorities. As much as we would all desire an ideal world where individuals find justice at their own courts, the reality remains that millions of Europeans are still dependent on Strasbourg for justice, some justice. While the court has justified grievances about its workload, efficiency can never justify partnering with authoritarian regimes and legitimizing their repression of minorities and dissidents. Thank you. Thank you very much um, for, for this very powerful uh, presentation of the arguments and the structure of the book, Dilek. Um, I would like to give the floor to Professor Alexander Renouz for a discussion uh, of the book. Thank you and welcome to Parity Center for Fundamental Rights. Thank you. Uh, it's really an honor to have been asked to do this. And I have, um, since I received the book, I've been talking to everybody about it. I think it's an amazing new perspective on the European court in particular that has a lot of lessons for transnational courts in general um, and I will talk about that a little bit. Um, when I uh, was first researching, so my, my scholarship focuses on the Inter-American Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American system and when I first began researching particularly 
the Inter-American Court's orders to states to investigate and punish disappearances. And I sought comparative experiences. I ran into a powerful article, run, wonderfully written, in Law and Social Inquiry on Turkey by Bashar Kali, uh, The Logics of Supranational Human Rights Litigation. And this opened my eyes to the fact that the European system used to be like the Latin American commission-based, and that it has always had the challenge of contending with systematic gross human rights violations from the start, much like the inter-American system, despite all the literature to the contrary, saying that this really only begins at the close of the Cold War. So I did read this, and yet, like many of the scholars that Dick takes to task, I continue to participate in the acceptance and at times replication construction of this main narrative of the early European court as overseeing a group of like-minded, similarly situated democracies without gross human rights violations, and with Turkey, to quote uh, Kirban, as a perpetual footnote. The brilliance of this book is that it reverses this narrative. It takes the footnote, the so-called exceptional case, the hard case, to borrow from Dworkin, as the lens through which to understand and to reassess the European court. So the brilliance is to invert the way we view the court by viewing it from the perspective of the abject loss of Tebet Inan and her family and those similarly situated and their lawyers far from Strasbourg in occupied Kurdish towns. And the lens that she, that she chooses reveals an entirely new European court from the one that's so often depicted in the literature. And I'm, there's, it's a very rich book. Uh, there's much more to say than I'm able to say in, in this brief time. But I wanted to briefly make three points that struck me about this book and then close with just a few comparative points with the inter-American human rights system in Latin America. Um, so the first thing that I really was struck by, it comes early in the book and came early in the talk today, is, is her proposal for a new standard against which to measure the effectiveness of transnational human rights courts. In, in the context of authoritarian governments, we should measure the effectiveness of a transnational court by its ability, I was particularly struck by the bottom up or second prong, to empower domestic movements fighting for justice. I think this is a really interesting move. You don't have here the naive view that a faraway human rights court can single-handedly single take on and win against the practice of an authoritarian regime. It's rather the idea that the court has a duty to empower those who do, and that's what it sh its commitment should be. I think this measure of effectiveness is itself a contribution to the literature. I find it much more convincing than many of the other alternatives for measuring effectiveness of these courts. And it's a socio-legally informed normative standard drawing on, on the literature as well as her experience. Uh, I would like to see it adopted. I'd like to hear more about whether it's only in the context of authoritarian regimes or whether it could be extended beyond that. Um, and, um, and, and to other types of litigation in democratic settings where sometimes the struggles are to expand or create new ideas about rights rather than to defend those very fundamental rights around which there's so much consensus. Second, I am struck by the tone of this book. The book seethes with indignation. As a reader, you immediately recognize that you're in the hands of an excellent writer from the first story, which without saying so invokes Antigone in the most foundational human struggles for justice. But the indignation that drives this book is not only 
against the Turkish government, the main purveyor of injustice. And it's not only against the European Court of Human Rights or the UN states for their neglect of the injustices against the Kurds. It's also, and poignantly, an indignation against the scholars who have allowed ourselves to be duped into this false narrative about the European court with damaging effects for the scholarship, but also for the social movements and the reforms. The hidden secondary story of this book isn't the failure of the court, but the failure of scholars who are supposed to be independent-minded and critical, but failed. And why did they fail? Kurtman does not come out and say so, but a mix, it's, I draw from this, a mix of herd mentality and it seems bias through which non-European people can be more easily footnoted seems to be part of the story here and power of, part of the power of this book is seeing that, is revealing that. Third, I'm struck by her research methodology. I believe the book is this powerful and has this strong and transitive perspective and that's possible only because the author so deeply participated in the social movements she's writing about. So the participant observation, um, the interviews, the long, the, the empirically informed qualitative research over years that allowed her to get a truly novel and different perspective on the court, even as she is deeply immersed also in the scholarship. And I found that the bottom up aspect of the book was particularly strong and something that we need much more of in transnational court literature, as, um, as Dilek just said. There's much more to say about the book, but I'm gonna move now to some thoughts, some comparative thoughts. Um, so the, the role of the inter-American system in this book is interesting because it's sort of used as a comparison of how things could be, right? So it's, it's, um, it's a positive take on the inter-American system. Uh, and in its analysis, there's two things that I would say I would want to see you think about. One is the role of the Inter-American Commission. Uh, the Inter-American Commission is the first instance in the Inter-American system. It's not a court, and it has many different ways of operating at its disposal, including country reports in which it delves deeply into the history and politics and context of a country, and including open hearings that are not necessarily tied to a particular case that then goes up to the court. I wonder if this helps also to explain, in addition to some of the factors that you wrote, how the inter-American system gets a deeper understanding of the structural political context. This would be a top-down explanation. It's something to consider. I think we understudy not just the commission when we look at the inter-American system, but also the relationship of the commission and the court and how one shapes the other. Another consideration is that a lot of the sort of heroic jurisprudence of the inter-American system in cases of forced disappearance, extrajudicial killings, through the individual petition system, it only emerged after the transitions to democracy. Um, so in this way, it has been about investigation of past violations. The commission was engaged in the 70s and 80s in the thick of the military dictatorships and repression. The court steps in later. There are exceptions to this. Peru, for example, um, Fujimori did end up being confronted directly by the inter-American system and withdrew, denounced. 
from, from the system, but it, Peru quickly came back. Same with the Chavez and Maduro, right? That those were cases that were confronted by the system and Venezuela withdrew. It's still not, no longer under um, the jurisdiction of the court. Perhaps more comparable, therefore, is Colombia. It's an unfolding conflict, always in under the gaze of the inter-American system. But I have to say, it'd be interesting to examine, Colombia, unlike Turkey, is a very centrally located country in the inter-American system. And the, the, uh, there's, no, there's no ethnic conflict that's quite comparable. So as I thought about this, what would, you know, what, what's the most analogous case, I realized that we are actually in the inter-American system in need of a bottom-up critical take like this from the perspective of a group that hasn't been able to mobilize effectively through the inter-American system. All our cases are really success stories that we've looked at. Not always, there's criticism, but but there, there are cases that have strongly mobilized um, through the system and in which the system has strongly supported and interacted with social movements. So there's a way in which I worry, therefore, that the image of the inter-American system you use is, like the one that you criticize of the European system, a myth perhaps that needs to be, if not busted, at least refined. Um, there's still a way in which in the inter-American system no one wants to critique it too much because we need it, it's fragile, it's constantly contested. But I actually think we need a Dilek Kurban. We need someone writing from perhaps Haiti uh, or Suriname or from a discrete and insular community within the more mainstream states uh, in order to really get to round out our understanding of the inter-American system and looking at cases that don't make it, right? I, I really like about the book how... Um, Dilek looks at the social movement before it gets to the European system and then after. Um, so the, the sociology of absences, uh, as, as Boaventura calls it, what are the cases that don't get there? So in conclusion, this book convinced me that we need a Dilek Kurban for the inter-American system. Uh, and with, the, with that, I'll close in order to leave time for uh, ample time for Q&A. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.